Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, my friends, I'm so excited to tell you that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down, is now available for pre-order. You can go and do that now. The link will be in the show notes below. I would greatly appreciate each and every one of you if you could go and pre-order a copy right now. The book will be officially launched September 27th of this year, but you can go and pre-order a copy of the book right now, and I hope that you all consider doing that. All right. Let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. I think many of us know what IQ is. It's that form of intelligence that we are constantly bombarded with that you need to have when you are in school. But my guest today talks about something very, very different, and that is emotional intelligence, why that matters more than IQ in the first place. Does IQ, in fact, define our destiny? In this groundbreaking, best-selling book, Emotional Intelligence, which is Quite an old book, uh, but it is it still holds its its value today. It's a global phenomenon, actually. It, it sold five million copies, and I'm one of the five million people that bought a copy of the book and has absolutely loved reading the book. Uh, Daniel Goleman is my guest today, the one that wrote this groundbreaking book, but he argues that our view of intelligence is far too narrow, and I definitely agree with him on that. It is not IQ, but emotional intelligence that plays a major role in thought, decision-making, and overall success. Self-awareness, impulse control, persistence, motivation, empathy, and social uh, deafness are all qualities that mark people who excel. With a new introduction and in-depth insight into the brain, Uh, architecture, underlying emotional and rationality. Daniel Goleman shows precisely how emotional intelligence can be nurtured and strengthened in all of us. And for those of you that need to know more about who Daniel Goleman is, he's an internationally known psychologist. As a science journalist, Goleman reported on the brain and behavioral sciences for the New York Times for many years 
His international bestseller, which I just read out, Emotional Intelligence, sold more than 5 million copies worldwide and has been translated into 40 languages, which is a pretty incredible achievement. Dr. Goldman's work as a science journalist has been recognized with many awards, including a Lifetime Career Award from the American Psychological Association and many, many more. Goldman is also the co-founder of the Collaborative of Academic, Social and Emotional Learning, originally at the Yale Child Study Center, and he and he currently co-directs the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence in organizations at Rutgers University, among many, many other things. So this man is extremely busy. Still at his age, he continues to speak uh, and continues to do this work for all of us to benefit from and learn from. And I think it's, it's such an important work. And we, if you are interested and if you haven't already read the book Emotional Intelligence, Why It Can Matter More Than IQ, I highly recommend that you go and get a copy of it right now. I'll link that in the show notes below for you. But because Dr. Goldman is incredibly busy, uh, this conversation abruptly ends at the towards the very end. That is because he had a phone call and it was important and I didn't want to waste too much of his time. So I did want to get further into more things regarding emotional intelligence and but sadly time didn't really permit us to do that. So hopefully later on in the future, we will dive further in for you guys. But until then, enjoy this conversation with Dr. Goldman. But if you do get something from it and you do enjoy it, I would love for you guys to share it around and uh, yeah, with your friends, family, online, you name it. Don't forget to leave a rating and review over and have a podcast too. Help goes a long way in supporting the show uh, and all those amazing, wonderful things. Also, my friends, I want to let you know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down, is now available for pre-order. It comes out September 27th, so we've got a little bit of time uh, to boost this thing, but I hope that you guys can pre-order a copy right now for yourself, and I hope that it helps you when you do eventually get your physical hardcover copy uh, and you do read it. So my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me in this story box and learn more about emotional intelligence and why it matters more than IQ plus so many other amazing things as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice and the stories of none other than world-renowned psychologist, Dr. Daniel Goleman. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for making the time. I could have gone... A lot longer with your introduction because your bio is is long. I was looking on your website not that long ago, actually, and, and reading your incredible story, which I cannot wait to unbox more about for my audience today. But before we do that, my very first question for you, and I'm very curious to know your answer to this, what does success look like for you? I think um, success is having a really satisfying day. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not, uh, you know, a particular accomplishment, but it's a set of circumstances like uh, uh, a creative um, insight into something I'm working on, some ongoing project or problem, connecting with people I love to connect with, uh, and um, being in a good mood. 
for me, that's success. I don't think it's about a particular like, oh, you did this or you did that or something that goes on your resume, but rather that your life is replete. Mm. I love that answer. What does it mean for you? Or what does it look like for you in terms of being creative? Or what does it mean to be a, or be creative? Well, I'm pretty much a writer. So it has to do with uh, a, a, what to write. I, I have a funny philosophy about writing. I write every day, pretty much, but I only write what comes to me. I don't ever f- sit down and try to force it. So for me, the satisfaction comes from, oh, well, that, that's an interesting thing to write. I'll write that. Do you believe in creative blocks at all? Well, I think um, I have a kind of judo strategy for creative blocks, which is to not fight it, mm. but just to go with what comes. And if nothing comes, then you don't do anything that day. Mm. Yeah, I found the the same thing. That's probably been the best advice I've ever gotten from someone. He says, don't force it. (laughs) If you try and force it, nothing really comes or something bad comes usually. (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, if if I don't have something to write in a particular day, I can just edit what I've already written or do some reading, something else. It's all part of the same process. So I want to go into your story a little bit more and and ask you how you got started in in this line of work and and being interested in, I guess, creativity, the brain, uh, emotional intelligence, which is what you're probably most known for, I guess. But how did you get started in all this? I think it's it's quite an interesting story for for my audience to, to listen to. Well, you know, I don't think life happens according to plan. I think that life happens serendipitously and openings occur and you go through a door or you don't. Uh, So I started out thinking I would become a doctor, but then organic chemistry came along and it turned out I didn't really care about organic chemistry. So there went that, that door closed. Then I thought, well, I'll be a psychologist. So I went to, um, graduate school in psychology. I got a doctorate in psychology. But it turned out what I really liked to do was to write. And uh, I was trained as a psychotherapist, never really did it. I started writing. I got a job at a magazine. Uh, I didn't expect to. In fact, when when I uh, told my colleagues at Harvard that I was going to go work for a magazine, they're uh, reaction pretty much was uh, disappointment. Like, what a waste of a good education. Then it turned out I became what's now known as a science journalist, whereas looking at articles in uh, scholarly journals, trying to see, well, what's interesting here for someone who's not a scientist? What's, what's useful here? What's important? What's new? And if so, then I would write about it for a much larger audience. I actually saw myself as an educator. What was interesting was that those colleagues at Harvard who had been a little scornful were now coming to me and saying, um, gee, would you write about my research? Because they saw that they could reach a much wider audience Mm -hmm. uh, through, say, the New York Times than uh, some journal that like a handful of people would read. 
So I kind of fell into science journalism. Uh, I was working at the New York Times and I got a, uh, I was on the science desk for many years and we would have different editors. They'd roll through. They were like the manager of the science desk. And I had one guy who had a real antipathy to me. And he told me that he was going to fire me. And uh, I thought, hmm, I remembered some advice that I'd been given in India by an old yogi. The yogi said, you can plan for 100 years, but you don't know it'll happen the next moment. Mm. So this horrible boss came along and I thought, I got to leave here and I have to do something else. And that something else happened to be writing a book called Emotional Intelligence. And that became a career in itself. And you didn't, was, you was, didn't expect it to blow up, did you? Well, I remember before the book came out, I thought I better send out another book proposal so that they'll buy it before they see how poorly this book does. I had no idea. And the rest is pretty much history, to be honest with well, you. Like, yeah, here I am on your podcast. Now. <laughs> it absolutely went wild. Uh, you have a lot of people all over the world that love this book and for damn good reason too. But I'm interested in why writing? What was it about writing that you fell in love with the most? Well, I'd always liked to write uh, through school. I mean, I, I liked essays. I liked my English courses. And um, it just came easily to me. And so it was, it, it was something that I could get a lot of satisfaction from mm. writing. And uh, when I found out I could make a living at it, that was perfect. How, how is writing or how does writing for those people that want to learn more about the creative process, how does writing inform that creative process or enhance it? Well, writing is a creative process. Mm. Uh, when I, I never really know what I'm going to write until it comes to me. That's creativity. Uh, the creative moment is when you get an insight on, for example, for a writer, like, oh, th this would fit very nicely. Right now, I'm kind of working on three different books. <laughs> and um, what comes to me to write, what occurs to me to write, is a product of what I've read or what I've been thinking about. And then uh, where it might fit in those books. Well, what book does it go into? Mm. For example, how do, how do emotions play into creativity? I think that um, the, the, so the creative process, as I see it, has three steps. Mm. One is you have like a problem, like, oh my, what am I going to write next? Uh, and you, um, you investigate it thoroughly. Like you, you don't know where your next inspiration is going to come from. So you cast a wide net and you kind of, you, you're very dogged about it. You gather information. And then the next step is a little counterintuitive. You forget about it. Mm. Because it turns out that the part of the brain that is active in the creative moment isn't the part of the brain that investigates thoroughly and you know, gathers information. 
It's a part of the brain that takes over when you're not doing anything in particular. You can be like walking your dog or taking a shower or doing something where you're basically doing nothing. And that's when the part of the brain that gives you an insight is going to be active. And then you get the insight and then you go back to that first mode because you have to execute on the insight. You have to turn it into something which is new, useful uh, and uh, novel. That's a definition of something of a creative product. Mm. So when I when I write, often I get my best ideas. They come to me when I wake up. Mm. They've been gestating while I was sleeping. Not always. I also I'm an avid meditator. Mm. So I meditate in the morning and sometimes I'll get a lot of ideas when I'm meditating, which is not what you're supposed to be doing when you're meditating. But what you do is you're turning off your active um, thoughts mm. and you let stuff come. And sometimes it comes then. I'm fine that I'm more creative when I'm on my morning runs. Like I get up at 4am in the morning oh. and I'll do, I'll have like my morning ritual, my morning practice. So meditation is part of that. Then I'll go out and reflect on all the things that I have meditated on even more. And then that just builds my creativity for a particular idea going forth in the day, whether it's writing something down, whether it's like mm. a question that I have for a guest on a, on a podcast, like speaking with you today, I was just trying to think of all the, the different questions I could ask you. And uh, there's mm. so many of them, believe it or not. <laughs> um, but there's, there's a curiosity of when someone's actually in the shower and mm. they're, they're thinking of like, you're, you're so incredibly creative when you're in the shower and I'm, I've, wondered for a long time why is that <laughs> that's why you're because you're not doing anything in the shower you're just taking a shower and your mind is floating free that is interesting <laughs> so okay where does where does creativity in fact come from is it is it all around us is is there a way is there somewhere where we can really pinpoint Okay, this is where, in fact, it comes from, or is this a dumb question? I think that uh, creative creativity is an inside job. It's not from out. The inputs come from everywhere outside. Yeah. But you putting together in a novel, original way is totally inside. And as I said, it happens when you're not doing anything. The Technically, from a neuroscience point of view, it's called the default mode network. Default mode means this was a startling finding. It turned out that when people were doing nothing, when they're doing math, certain parts of the brain are very active. When they're not doing anything, they're just waiting to hear what to do. <clears throat> Turns out that the brain is using as much energy as it ever does. But what's active, it's what's called this default mode network which is the part of your brain which takes over when you're just hanging out. You're not doing anything. You're not goal-focused. You're not task-oriented. And that's the part of the brain that comes up with creative insights. Mm. I find creativity an interesting subject. <laughs> is there different levels? Sorry if I'm staying on creativity a bit longer than I intended to, but is there different levels of being creative? Like someone, for example, is better at, the creative practice than someone else? Probably. 
I mean, Picasso was a much better artist than I would ever be, was. Um, so some people seem to be able to generate more novel and new ideas than other people. And some people are also masters of a given domain. So like a top Van Gogh or Picasso would be an amazingly creative artist. But part of that was their technical mastery too. So when they got a new idea, they could execute it in a way which was shockingly startling, new and great. Mm. So moving from the subject of creativity to more something that I am interested in, which is emotional intelligence. What is, for those people that don't know, what is emotional intelligence and how does that differ from IQ? So I think of it as a different way of being smart. It's not your IQ, your academic intelligence. Uh, it's how you manage yourself and how you relate to other people. It's things like knowing what you're thinking and feeling, why it's happening, how it's affecting what you do, uh, being able to keep your eye on your goals despite obstacles, being able to stay positive no matter what happens to bounce back from setbacks, being adaptable. Uh, that's managing yourself. But then there's tuning into other people. That starts with empathy knowing what people are thinking or what they're feeling or caring about other people and then putting that together in your relationships. You know, can you influence someone for the better? Can you inspire people? Can you be a great team member? Things like that. All of that is emotional intelligence. Are human beings more naturally wired for emotional intelligence or are they taught emotional intelligence? I think it's both learned and learnable. Some of it, you know, some people are by nature more outgoing. You can see it since they're a baby. Yeah. Some of them are more shy. But there's the brain is largely what's called plastic, meaning it can change. Uh, and we're constantly strengthening certain neural circuits and weakening others because we use certain ones and others we don't. So the brain is changing all the time. The emotional social circuitry of the brain is the last part to become anatomically mature uh, it, in the mid-20s, actually. Our social-emotional capacities are growing, and they're shaped by what we do or what we don't do. Hey, friends, sorry to disturb you from listening to this amazing conversation, but I just wanted to let you know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down, is now available for pre-orders. I'll make sure the link is in the show notes below. So if you do want to learn how to lead your life in the very best way possible and you love stories and you want to learn more about my story, the living roller coaster ride that it is, then go and pre-order a copy right now. The book will be uh, available everywhere books are sold September 27th. But, but if you can go and pre-order it now, I would be so, so grateful. All right, my friends, let's get back into the incredible story. Right. So why is it, why more or less is in today's society, why are people more focused on IQ? Well, you know, when you went to school, you were told it matters and it did. Your IQ determines what you can learn, how quickly you can learn, what you can remember, 
what you can regurgitate for a test. So all through school for, you know, 14 years uh, or maybe 18 years, or if you go into a profession, 20 some years, you're told that it matters. Uh, however, once you get into your career, you're working with people that have the same education level that you do. Yeah. And it means that your education level doesn't matter so much in terms of who's going to be outstanding. You may be outstanding because you're an awesome team member or team leader. You may be outstanding because you're very disciplined in achieving your goals. You may be outstanding because you're particularly empathic and people relate to you and gravitate to you. Uh, so the it turns out that the so-called soft skills, emotional intelligence, over the course of your career matters more. But there's a learning curve. Uh, so if you ask people who are entry level, which matters more, soft skills or tech skills? They'll say tech skills, 70%. Yeah. If you uh, ask a top executive which matters more, they'll say, oh, people skills, totally. Because as you go up the career ladder, you're managing people. You're not employing your tech skills. They, The people you are managing have the skills. You just have to manage people. That takes mm -hmm. emotional intelligence. And it takes a while to learn that. So that's why I think people have the idea that, emo that uh, IQ matters more. And also, it, it's the domain. If you stay in academics, it's going to matter pretty much your whole career, IQ. Uh, if it, if you're talking about your love life, forget it, buddy. Let's talk about empathy, huh? Mm. I want to get into empathy in just a moment, but the emotional side of us as humans, like, can we can we un unbox a little bit more about why we have emotions? Which emotions are imperative for us to have? Because it seems like some people have these these more emotions than other people do. Mm. Um, and why does it take so long? Sorry for all the, the questions. <laughs> but why does it take so long for someone to learn the importance or really the basis of emotional intelligence? Well, there's there's a lot of questions in that question. Sorry. <laughs> okay. But one of the things uh, that can fast forward your learning is what's called social emotional learning. It's a curriculum in emotional intelligence for kids kindergarten through till they go to university. Uh, and I don't know if it's in Australia much. I don't know. It's it's kind of a worldwide movement, but it's idiosyncratic what schools have it and what don't. Uh, there are three different dimensions to emotionality. One is, are you triggered often or not so often to have a powerful emotion? Some people are, some people aren't. The second is when you feel the emotion, do you feel it intensely or not so intensely? That's another difference. Uh, and the third is when you have a strong emotion, uh, does it take you a long time to recover from it, say anxious or angry, or do you get over it pretty quickly? That's another way people um, differ. And the um, ability to manage disruptive emotion. You don't want to minimize your passions and, you know, the pleasures. Mm. You want to minimize the things that get in your way, like anxiety, worry, uh, jealousy, anger. 
and that the ability to do that is called cognitive control. And kids start learning it when they're little, and you can get better and better at it through life. Uh, and whether you learn it or not it is quite idiosyncratic too. Yeah. Some people do, some people don't. Yeah. I think I've always said, you want to change society, you educate the kids. And I think educating the kids with these skills, such as understanding the emotional impacts that go on in their life is super important for how they interact with people, which brings me to the social component of emotional intelligence. Um, how do we become better social beings? <laughs> you know, um, it, it depends what it is you're doing socially for one thing. Yeah. As I said, in a romantic relationship, you want to be totally present to the other person and tuned in. Uh, if you're a team member, uh, it's a different set of social skills that includes empathy, but it goes beyond. It, it, you know, you're coordinating, you're collaborating. Uh, if you're uh, managing someone, then you need to be good at uh, guiding and influencing or coaching, mentoring. If you're a parent, you're a coach for your kids. So it all depends on what the skill is that's relevant to your particular relationship or the skill set. Do you think that in today's day and age that we're becoming worse at being more social depending on the kind of relationships that oh. we are in? That's really interesting because uh, there's a possibility that the fact that people spend more face time with screens than with people uh, in childhood and adolescence and beyond may be de-skilling people in um, relationship abilities. We, we don't really know that yet, but it's a good possibility. I've noticed that. another reason, by the way, that I think it's important to be teaching these skills to kids. Yeah, because so they're, they're aware of it when they do end up going into, say, for example, a Zoom meeting. I think with COVID, yeah. it's just been like Zoom is just like, yeah, you're constantly looking at a screen day in and day yeah. out. And it's contributing to, I guess, there's a kind of a lack of emotion, if I'm being honest, with. Well, here's there's several problems with Zoom or any teleconference. And that is the hardware wasn't designed for it. Uh, person to person, face to face, we'd have eye contact. On teleconference, either I look to camera and you think I'm looking you in the eye, or I look at your face, which is off camera, and I break contact. So you can't have eye contact, which is the basis of rapport. So you need to do to be extra empathic. You need to tune into the other person uh, with more intention, I think, and more effort to have the same kind of connection. I and by the way, uh, if you're on a teleconference or on Zoom, you know, when you check your phone to see if you have a message, the person who's watching you thinks you are looking away and you don't care what they're saying. Mm. So you may be sending messages unintentionally uh, because it's not a face-to-face -face interaction. Mm. I've had conversations with people on Zoom and they've 
I've seen the the light on their computer screen light up. I've heard the text message sound and they've quickly, and they're, they're still talking to me and they're doing two things at once. And I'm like, well, you're not really paying attention. So there's exactly. that, that side yeah. of things that yeah. does go on, which is kind of like it's hijacking our attention and also the emotion of that's going on in the conversation. Right. So it, I think it just makes the conversations worse. <laughs> if, if I'm being honest. Uh, yeah. So if you split your attention, then you diminish the quality of the relationship of the interaction. That's what you're saying. And uh, there's lots of temptations. So for example, um, on my computer, I don't know how to turn it off. I get little, bubbles if somebody sends a, a text and it's very hard not to look at that bubble yeah. while I'm in a zoom but if I do then the person I'm zooming with feels like I'm not paying attention and in fact I'm paying less attention you're right yeah, and that's that you're sending an emotional message when you do that kind of um builds up a little bit of annoyance <laughs> even though I want to be empathetic to their situation it just still makes me a little bit annoyed. But anyway, I am I am a gracious individual. <laughs> I will say that. Um, but can we talk more about empathy a little bit? I mean, why is empathy so important and how do we become more empathetic people? I think that's a really important question, particularly uh, given the lockdowns, if you had them. Yep. You're, yeah. The fact that we haven't been with people. I was recently at a gathering, it was for a birthday party, about 10 people, and uh, everyone took a uh, rapid test before they came in so that no one had masks. Mm -hmm. And people said, this is the first time in two years I've been with a group of people without masks, uh, or even with a group of people. It was great. But... I mentioned de-skilling. We may lose the ability because we're not practicing it to tune into people face to face. You know, we're used to the Zoom, which is a broken connection for for uh, hardware reasons. And so, I think that it may take more effort for us to really pay attention to the other person which is what is, that's the basis of empathy. Empathy is about attention, interpersonal attention. Yeah. Are there any other components of empathy that we need to be aware of? Well, there are three kinds of empathy. One is cognitive. I know what you're thinking. I can understand your perspective. I know the language you use, so I can communicate with you more effectively. The second is emotional empathy. I feel what you feel. It's really powerful. Yeah. But the third is caring about the person, concern, like a parent does for a child. And all three of them are really valuable, really important kinds of empathy. Mm. Yeah. And each one, I think, has its own learning curve. Yeah. And it's practicing and getting feedback, whether it's implicit or explicit, that we improve our empathy. So can someone practice all three at the same time or just one at different times? I think that if you, uh, I think naturally all three occur or at least two. Some people don't care. Yeah. There are people who are a little sociopathic, for example, 
uh, might be very good at uh, cognitive empathy and emotional empathy. They don't care. They don't have the third kind. Yeah. So they use the information to their own benefit because they don't care about the other person. So I think having all three is the best uh, suite of empathic skills. What did your mother teach you about empathy? My mother. <laughs> that was too long ago to remember. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> was there something that she taught you in regards to emotional intelligence? Uh, well, we didn't have the concept then, mm. so I don't really know. I remember her motto was, uh, uh, make the world a better place, which is a caring motto. And, uh, she was a very active, you know, like in the nursing association and community, this and community that. So she probably taught me by example. Mm. Yeah. What were some other lessons that your mother taught you that you still carried on uh, to this day? Oh, well, I think uh, being a social activist, in a sense, was a lesson from my mother. My father, both my parents were professors. My mother was a social worker and a professor of sociology. Mm. My father was a, a linguist and a professor of humanities. And from him, I think I picked up a sense of um, a kind of the oneness of humanity, the way in which people everywhere are the same underneath the surface differences of culture and place, uh, which is a really important lesson, I think. Mm. Love those lessons. I've got a couple more questions for you, Dr. Goldman, sure. if that's okay with you. Right um, you. You talk about the master aptitude and how that how does that really apply to emotional intelligence? I believe you mentioned uh, impulse control in in that particular chapter. You also mentioned the marshmallow marshmallow experiment. But how is that important to applying that to our daily lives in terms of? So the master aptitude is really uh, handling your own disruptive emotions, impulses, and so on. And uh, remember, there are four parts to emotional intelligence. There's self-awareness, there's self-mastery. This is all about self-mastery. Empathy and relationship skills are the other two. So uh, the master aptitude that I was talking about is this cognitive control, this ability to manage your disruptive emotions so they don't get in the way. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Well, I don't want to waste too much more of your time. I know you need to call your son back, but my final question for you, this is my all-time favorite question, I ask everyone at the end of all my conversations, it is a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100, all your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument, but they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Oh, I think um, I'd like the film to show the ways in which I have helped other people improve their lives. Mm. Perfect send-off message. Dr. Goldman, thank you so much for your time today, sir. Thank you for, for all your wisdom and your advice and for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Thank you. It's been quite a pleasure. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. 
I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guests today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.